1: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by. Welcome to the Thomson Reuters First Quarter Earnings Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question-and-answer session. Instructions will be given at that time. If you should require assistance during the call, please press star, then zero. As a reminder, this conference is being recorded. I would now like to turn the conference over to your host, Head of Investor Relations, Mr. Frank Golden. Please go ahead.
2: Good morning, and thank you for joining us today. This call marks the first time our new CEO, Steve Hasker, and our new CFO, Mike Eastwood, will report our results and will follow a similar format format to past practice. Given the impact COVID-19 is having on the economy, discussing Q1 results feels like looking in the rearview mirror and the guidance we gave only two months ago is already dated. Nevertheless, we believe transparency is critical at a time like this for our stakeholders. Steve and Mike will where the company stands today, both operationally and financially. They will also discuss our updated outlook for the full year, as well as for the second quarter, taking into account the tremendous uncertainty resulting from the global COVID-19 pandemic and its evolving impact on businesses. Now, to enable us to get to as many questions as possible when we open the phone lines, we'd appreciate it if you would limit yourselves to one question each and and one additional follow-up. Before getting started, I'd like to remind you, about the 2019 segment revisions that we mentioned last quarter and are now reflected in our first quarter results throughout today's presentation when we compare performance period on period we discuss revenue growth rates before currency as well as on an organic basis as we believe this provides the best basis to measure the underlying performance of the business today's presentation contains forward-looking statements Actual results may differ materially due to a number of risks and uncertainties related to COVID-19 pandemic and other risks discussed in our reports and our filings that we provide from time to time to regulatory agencies. You may access these documents on our website or by contacting our Industrial Relations Department. Now I'd like to turn the, the call over to Steve Hasker. Steve?
3: Uh, thank you, Frank, and thanks to all of you for joining us today on my first earnings call. Needless to say, I joined Thomson Reuters at rather a tumultuous time from a global macro perspective. However, I'm fortunate to have joined a company with a long history, a strong foundation, and very resilient businesses. A company whose customers truly value our solutions, and a company that is essential to the efficient functioning of critical markets that drive world commerce. It's a responsibility that we all take very seriously each and every day we come to work, particularly at a time like this. Now in this environment, our first priority is the health and safety of our employees. I want to extend a heartfelt thanks and express a deep sense of pride in the way our employees have stepped up and rallied in this crisis. I admire the flexibility, the adaptability, and the resilience that our people have shown in the midst of great change. Their commitment to seamlessly support our customers across the world is impressive. And now more than ever, we need to help businesses, communities, and economies move forward. I also want to thank those in each of our communities across the world who are battling this virus, including healthcare workers, first responders, and numerous others on the front lines. Our Reuters journalists have always been on the front line, and their global coverage of the pandemic has been truly outstanding. I would also like to make mention of the Pulitzer Prize our Reuters team won yesterday for its coverage of the Hong Kong protests, the fifth such award in three years. We can't thank everyone enough for their courage and perseverance. If there are three key messages that I'd like to convey during today's discussion, they are these. First, Thomson Reuters is very well positioned to navigate through this challenge from both an operational and financial perspective. Our business is resilient, and we have proved our adaptability by seamlessly moving 98% of our workforce to working effectively from home. Our strong balance sheet and liquidity position permit us to maintain our focus where it needs to be on our customers. Second, I believe this crisis will create more demand for our core solutions. In my daily conversations with customers, I see more demand for accurate, timely, and useful information delivered digitally and accessible 24 hours a day. And thirdly, as a management team, we are looking to take every opportunity to accelerate our investments in our core franchises through and beyond this crisis. I firmly believe we'll emerge from the other side of this crisis even stronger. Before I dive into the details this morning, I think it's also worth mentioning that based on my opening months with the company, I would observe that we have plentiful growth opportunities within our core franchises and significant potential to take further advantage of operating scale and efficiencies. Let me now turn to our results for the first quarter and our expectations for the balance of the year. The results for the first quarter came in as planned and we're off to an encouragingly strong start to the year. As noted on our fourth quarter call, we entered the year with a healthy information services market in general and improving legal and regulatory markets in particular. And that was certainly what we were seeing through the first half of March when COVID-19 began to take hold across the world. As expected, reported revenues and organic revenues both increased 2%, and revenues at constant currency were up 3%, with currency having had about a 100 basis point negative impact this quarter. Adjusted EBITDA was $480 million, up 21% helped by higher revenues and by not having incurred stranded or one-time costs as occurred in the prior period. And adjusted EPS was $0.48 per share versus $0.36 per share a year ago. Our legal, corporates and tax and accounting segments, which make up 80% of our revenues, recorded another good quarter with organic revenue growth of 4%. Legal in particular started the year strong and had a very good quarter with organic revenues up 4% and revenues before currency were up 5%. Legal's revenue growth was bolstered by the continued success of Westlaw Edge which is seeing knock-on benefits from the contract signed in the fourth quarter of 2019 with the US Department of Justice and the Administrative Office of the US Courts. Lawyers have been willing to pay a premium for solutions like EDGE that give them a competitive advantage and improve efficiency, particularly in the virtual environments in which they're currently working. Corporate's organic revenues were up 5%, and tax and accounting organic revenues were which we flagged would be the case last quarter, due to the permanent acceleration of ultra-tax state tax software from the first quarter of 2020 to the fourth quarter of 2019. And Tax and Accounting's reported revenues were down 2% due to currency. We were confident that Tax and Accounting was on track to achieve revenue growth of between 6 and 8% for the balance of the year, prior to the impact we are now expecting to experience COVID-19. Reuters news organic revenues were down 4% and global print organic revenues declined 5% both as expected. Now customers have dramatically condensed the transformation of how they work. Change that might have otherwise taken years is happening in weeks. They're calling for support and we're there to help. Prior to COVID-19 law firms recognized the need to invest in technology solutions in order to compete but now they recognise they must do so in order to operate effectively if they're to properly serve their clients. And that's very good for us because they have a preference for fewer, more trusted strategic partners, and we're particularly well suited to leverage our unique position to be that partner. And many government agencies, as well as federal, state, and local courts have traditionally been laggards in adopting new technologies. Now they have no choice but to adapt to new ways of working. The transformation to more technology driven solutions by both lawyers and accountants will now accelerate given the changes we're all facing in working from home. The bottom line is that the work we do is more valuable not less valuable and I believe the support we're showing our customers today will lead to even deeper relationships tomorrow. Let me take a moment to remind you why we're so well suited to assist our customers with this transformation. First. A recap of the size of each of our businesses. Throughout today's presentation you'll hear Mike and I use the term Big Three. The Big Three consists of our legal, corporates and tax and accounting segments which comprise nearly 80% of total company revenues and grew 5% organically last year. These are solid businesses that are predominantly subscription-based, have high retention rates, generate high levels of recurring revenue, have significant operating leverage, achieve high profitability and generate substantial free cash flow. And given the markets in which we operate, our business profile and the steps we've taken to strengthen our operations and go-to-market strategy over the past several years, we believe we're better positioned than most companies to weather this storm. Now I won't spend much time on each of the bullets on this slide, suffice it to say we have great franchises serving large and stable professional markets. And we're fortunate to have a diverse customer base totaling about 500,000 customers across varied markets with no individual customer accounting for more than 2% of our revenues. This slide reflects the inherent strength of our big three businesses, which have proven resilient over decades through other challenging situations. Our customers depend on our must-have solutions, and we're providing support to ensure our customers can remotely access these solutions which also provides an opportunity to further expand our digital and self-service options. Given these deep relationships, we understand our customers' needs and we're helping them adapt. For example, we launched a COVID-19 resource centre on tr.com to support our customers with free resources created by our legal and tax experts to help them navigate this complicated and changing environment. And since many courts around the US have been closed, our court case management team is working to help courts operate virtually. And our government business is actively contributing to the fight against COVID-19. As one example, we used our investigative and data science skills to help the US government prevent the unlawful importation and distribution of counterfeit COVID-19 test kits and other unlicensed medical equipment from entering the United States. And lastly, our internal and external networks, technology and systems have stood up extremely well. Product usage generally remains high. with call wait times lower or at average level across all solutions. Customers are relying on us now more than ever. So in this current environment, as law firms shift to remote collaboration and service their clients, let me give you some tangible examples of several of our legal solutions that help customers in their daily work and can open doors to new opportunities. Working from home has caused us to change how we work and support our current solutions, and we've had to make some quick adjustments to our processes. Simply put, our solutions are made for addressing many of these issues that customers are facing, and they can be deployed rapidly. Whether the guidance and know-how in practical law that serves as the wise expert down the hall, or the collaboration experience of HiQ, which enables firms to stay in touch with or helping lawyers improve their arguments with Quick Check on Wet Floor Edge, our solutions are enabling the shift to remote work and empowering our customers to serve their their clients, whether they are working from a corner office or from their home office. Serving our customers, defending our position, and gaining market share where opportunities present themselves are what we are focusing on. We're also responding to our tax and accounting customers by providing solutions made for addressing many of the issues they're contending with, including helping customers staying up-to-date with our weekly COVID-19 newsletter, helping them rapidly transition to virtual delivery of training, implementation, and summits, by offering new Checkpoint Learning COVID webinar series that have had an unprecedented 84% (coughs) participation rate with over 20,000 registrants, and last, our practice forward team quickly built a toolkit providing guidance on stimulus funds, including a paycheck protection program calculator. Again, serving our customers, defending our position, and gaining market share, where opportunities present themselves, are what we're focusing on. Now, one of the questions we're frequently asked is, how did your businesses perform during the 2008 financial downturn, which this slide addresses? The businesses have changed somewhat over the course of the last 10 years, but directionally it's a good perspective. We estimate that our legal business, excluding print, grew 2% organically at a time when massive structural changes took place in the US legal market. And during the downturn, our tax and accounting business never grew less than 3% organically. Our legal and tax businesses are stronger and better positioned today than in 2008, which I'll discuss. On the next slide. In 2008, our legal business employed a usage-driven pricing model. The amount of data a customer used determined how much they paid. We lacked a multi-dimensional pricing model. <coughs> pricing differed from firm to firm and there was little transparency for customers. This meant we were exposed and vulnerable, which led to pricing pressure. Today, we don't employ a usage-based distribution model our Westlaw contracts employ an enterprise-wide structure and pricing is simplified and transparent across firms based on multiple factors. Moreover, we're deeply embedded in our customers' daily work and in the workings of the firm itself. And in contract negotiations, we can leverage a more diverse portfolio of assets with products including Westlaw, Practical Law, HiQ, Elite, and Contract Express. And ancillary expenses, which were transactional, or 160 million dollars in 2008, compared to only 50 million today, and have a more stable pricing model. As a result, our legal business is in a much more defensible position today than in the last downturn. Our tax and accounting business is 75% software-based today, and continues to be very sticky. Also, has a far more diverse portfolio with deep strategic relationships, and is also better positioned than 2008. Admittedly. This downturn is different than the prior one, but these charts may be a useful barometer as you assess how we may perform in today's environment. Now, let me turn to our updated outlook for this year. Now, since March, we've all witnessed an unprecedented level of volatility and uncertainty due to the devastating impact of COVID-19 on the global economy. And while it's still early to predict the timing as to how this may unfold, we believe it's important that we provide a perspective and be as transparent as possible despite the unknowns. What's reflected on this slide is our current view of how we may perform over the balance of the year. I want to stress that this is our current view and we'll update it when we report Q2 in August. We now forecast total company revenue growth between 1% and 2% with organic growth between 0 and 1%. Two of the primary reasons for lower growth forecasts compared the original outlook are related to Reuters news, primarily it's Reuters events, business and transactional revenues. On a combined basis, we forecast they will have a negative impact of about 200 basis points on total company growth. The other two contributing factors are projected lower sales in the big three segments and lower global print revenues. Mike will share more detail in a moment. This lower revenue growth is forecast to result in an adjusted EBITDA margin between 31 and 32%, and free cash flow of about $1 billion. In order to preserve EBITDA and free cash flow, the company instituted a $100 million cost savings program in March, targeting discretionary expenses, and I'm confident we'll achieve the $100 million target. Our lower free cash flow guidance assumes lower revenues and temporary delays collecting payments from some customers. But we're confident we'll collect this cash as the economy improves. And importantly, we're continuing to invest in, in many of our growth and transformation programs in order to position us for an improved economic environment in 2021 when we expect higher growth to return. And lastly, we thought it was important to provide guidance for our big three businesses, legal, tax and accounting, and corporates. Which reflects the expected resiliency of these businesses. We forecast that on a combined basis for the full year, these businesses should grow three to four percent and achieve an EBITDA margin of between 36 and 37 percent. Mike will provide you with details as to the assumptions we made in preparing our revised outlook. Let me now turn it over to Mike.
4: Thank you, Steve, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. Before reviewing the first quarter results, I want to emphasize what Steve said. Our number one priority is ensuring the safety and well-being of our employees while continuing to serve our customers. Currently, 98% of our employees are working from home in an effort to keep them safe. They have been working around the clock to continue to deliver world-class service to our customers, and they have been doing a terrific job. It's also important to emphasize our company has a very solid financial foundation and operating model that has historically been resilient during past downturns. And I want to assure you, we are well positioned financially and operationally to see our way through the current challenges. Now, moving to the results for the first quarter. Let me start by providing some color on the revenue performance of our Big Three segments. And as a reminder, I will talk to revenue growth before currency and on an organic basis. Revenue growth for the Big Three was up 5% for the quarter and increased 4% organically. As Steve mentioned, the legal business was off to a strong start to the year building on the momentum it had coming out of 2019. In fact, prior to COVID-19, it was poised to record its best year since before the last downturn in 2008. Despite the expected negative impact on COVID-19, we are still forecasting good growth for the full year given legal's unique position and ability to help law firms and government agencies navigate through the current environment. For the quarter, legal professionals' revenue increased 5%, with organic revenue up 4%. Law firm revenues grew a healthy 5%. Government government revenues had another strong quarter, with 11% growth, and our global legal businesses grew 3%. And Westlaw Edge continues to contribute over 100 basis points to growth, and yields a healthy premium. In our corporate segment, revenues were up 7%, including confirmation, which we acquired in July 2019, and organic revenues were up 5%, driven by our legal and tax solutions. And finally, tax and accounting revenues were flat in the first quarter, as expected, due to the change in timing for the release of ultra-tax state software which we discussed last quarter. On a normalized basis, which is shown in the far right column in blue on this slide, Tax and Accounting's organic revenues were up 6% for the quarter, driven by strong growth in our Latin America business and confirmation. Let me also point out the customary end of the U.S. tax season on April 15th has been extended to July 15th by the IRS and therefore will add a bit of uncertainty related to the timing of sales and revenues for this segment in the second quarter. Moving to Reuters News, revenues were flat in the first quarter with organic revenues down 4%. Reuters News was, and is expected to continue to be, negatively impacted by cancellations of in-person conferences at Reuters events due to COVID-19. More on this on the next slide. And global print revenues declined 5% in the quarter with organic revenues also down 5% as expected. The good news is our manufacturing plant in Eagan, Minnesota has been classified as an essential business and continues to operate with a mindset of safety first for our dedicated employees in the plant. So on a consolidated basis, first quarter revenues grew 3% with organic revenue growth of 2%. It's unusual for us to provide quarterly guidance. However, we thought it was important to provide more granularity around our expectations for the second quarter. So let me provide you with our view as to how the second quarter may shape up, understanding we are forecasting in real time, and our forecast may change depending upon risk, related to COVID-19. Starting with the total TR chart on the top left, we estimate second quarter total revenues will decline between 1% and 2%, and organic revenues will decline between 2% and 3%, primarily due to orders news and global print, which I will discuss in a moment. For Q2, The big three are forecast to achieve total revenue growth between 2.5% and 3.5%, and organic growth between 2% and 3%. One additional point to make pertaining to legal professionals is we forecast total recurring revenues should grow between 4% and 5%. However, Transactions revenues, which are less than 10% of the segment's total revenues, are expected to decline between 15% and 20% in Q2 for three reasons. First, a delay in some elite installations. Second, an assumption that there may be a slowing of sales. And third, the cancellation of some events. We forecast Legal's revenue growth rate will improve in Q3 and Q4 as the economy improves. Moving to Borders News, nearly all of Borders Events in-person conferences have been postponed through August. This will result in lost revenues of about $25 million in the second quarter, about 50% of Borders' Events' four-year revenues in our original plan. And events could forego an additional $15 million of revenue in Q4 if they are unable to resume in-person conferences. As Steve mentioned, this is one of the two key reasons for the lower total company guidance for the full year. Global print revenues are also expected to decline in the second quarter. Due to government-mandated shutdowns for a majority of the U.S., and many countries, we forecast a significant delay in shipping some of our print materials since customers are unlikely to be at their offices to accept shipments. We estimate this will result in the temporary delay of about 35 million of revenue in the second quarter, with about 25 million of that revenue being timing related. We believe we will be able to recoup most of this revenue as the economy begins to return to normal and will eventually be shipped as these print materials have historically been considered critical content by law firms and government agencies. The $35 million of temporarily delayed revenues is expected to result in a 15% to 25% decline in global print revenue in the second quarter but should rebound in the third and fourth quarters as law firms and government agencies begin to reopen and we can shift. Turning to our profitability performance in the first quarter. Adjusted EBITDA for the big three segments was $431 million, unchanged from the prior year period. Legal professionals adjusted EBITDA margin in the first quarter declined 140 BIPs to 36.7% compared to the prior year period due to the impact of acquisitions and timing of expenses. Corporate's adjusted EBITDA margin was down 20 BIPs to 31.9%. And finally, tax and accounting's adjusted EBITDA margin decreased 270 bips to 38.7 percent, primarily due to the ultra tax timing. Moving to Reuters news, adjusted EBITDA was 19 million, 4 million less than the prior year period, mainly due to costs related to the cancellation of in person events and higher investments. Global prints adjusted EBITDA margin for the quarter, declined by about 420 basis points due to the decline in revenues, but still remained strong at above 40%. And corporate costs were in line with our expectations for the quarter, and we continue to expect these costs to range between $140 million to $150 million for the full year. So in aggregate, Reported adjusted EBITDA was $480 million of 21% due to higher revenues and not having incurred any stranded or one-time costs as had been the case in the prior year period. This next slide provides a bit more color on the various factors impacting our adjusted EBITDA margin in the first quarter. As you can see on this slide, our reported 2020 first quarter adjusted EBITDA margin was 31.6%. There were several factors in the quarter that distorted our margin. First, the permanent acceleration of ultra-tax revenues to Q4 2019 had about a 40 basis point negative impact. Conversely, M&A activity positively impacted margin by about 50 basis points compared to the prior year period. Also, in the prior year period, we had about $37 million of expense that shifted to the second half of 2019, resulting in a negative 250 basis point impact in the first quarter of this year. And lastly, revenue flow through added about 100 basis points. So, on an underlying basis, excluding stranded and one-time costs in the prior period, the adjusted EBITDA margin contracted 150 basis points as expected, which was mainly related to the ultra-tax timing and favorable expense timing in the prior year period. We continue to recommend you look at our adjusted EBITDA margin on an annual basis. Overall, we believe we have good visibility into the levers at our disposal to achieve our revised margin target of 31% to 32%. As Steve mentioned, we have implemented a cost reduction program while still preserving the flexibility to make the necessary investments in 2020 in order to ensure that we're well positioned for 2021 from an organic growth perspective. Now, let me turn to our earnings per share and free cash flow performance, and I will also provide an update on our capital structure. So starting with earnings per share, adjusted EPS increased by 12 cents to 48 cents per share during the first quarter. The increase was driven by higher adjusted EBITDA, offset by an increase in depreciation and amortization, mainly related to acquisitions, Higher interest expense largely due to lower interest income and higher income taxes. Finally, currency had a one-cent negative impact on adjusted EPS in the quarter. Let me now turn to our free cash flow performance for the quarter. Our reported free cash flow was $35 million versus a negative $177 million in the prior year period. An improvement of just over $200 million. Consistent with previous quarters, this slide will hopefully help you remove the distorting factors impacting our free cash flow performance for the quarter. Working from the bottom of the page upwards, the Refinitiv related component of our free cash flow was up $42 million from the prior year period. This was primarily due to cost incurred in 2019 including residual employee-related costs and tax expenditures related to the operations of our former F&R business. Also in the current quarter, we made payments for separation costs incurred in 2019 related to our transformation program totaling 63 million versus a pension contribution and other payments totaling 279 million in the prior year period. So if you adjust for these items, comparable free cash flow from continuing operations was 113 million, 46 million lower than the prior year period, primarily due to unfavorable working capital movements. Given the understandable focus on the part of investors concerning many companies' financial strength, I think it is important to provide an update on our capital structure and liquidity and as you can see on this slide, our cap- capital structure and liquidity position remain strong. We expect to generate about 1 billion of free cash flow this year. We have 800 million of cash on hand, about 800 million available under our 1.8 billion revolving credit facility, and we also have a 1.8 billion commercial paper program. So from a liquidity standpoint, we are in a very strong position and we're also in a very strong position from a capital structure standpoint. We have no debt maturing until 2023, and we are modestly leveraged with a net debt to adjusted EBITDA ratio 2.1 times at the end of the first quarter, comfortably below our 2.5 times internal target, and our credit facility ratio is 1.9 times well below the credit line maximum of 4.5 times, and we don't anticipate any changes to our plans to pay an annualized dividend of $1.52 per share in 2020 to our common shareholders. Finally, in February, we completed our $200 million share buyback program and do not anticipate repurchasing any further shares in the near term. Now, an update on our investment in Refentative. The agreement to sell Refentative to the London Stock Exchange Group is still expected to close in the second half of 2020, which aligns with the statement made by the LSC on its Q1 earnings call two weeks ago that they are committed to closing this year. Now, regarding our investment stake when the proposed deal closes, as of market closed yesterday, our estimated interest was worth about 7.6 billion pre-tax. Our future equity interest in the LSC will represent a stored value which can be monetized over time, and we believe it will provide us with a significant level of financial flexibility in the foreseeable future. And after the deal closes, we expect to receive regular dividends from the LSC estimated at around $60 million per year based on the current company's current annual dividend policy. And one final point regarding future taxes to be paid related to our LSE shares. We estimate we will owe tax of between $400 and $600 million upon the closing of the transaction later this year, depending upon the price of the LSE stock at the time. We have several options available regarding how we will fund the tax payment aside from free cash flow, cash on hand, or drawing under our revolver, including some non-core minority investments. I will remind you we have the right to sell a proportional amount of the LSE shares to cover the tax payment. And at the time we can exercise our right to sell shares in years three and four after we will owe tax at the U.S. corporate tax rate, which is currently 25%. Let me now build upon what Steve presented regarding our updated 2020 outlook. We thought it would be helpful to provide more detail regarding the specific components that we forecast will negatively impact revenue growth for 2020. This chart reflects the changes in our original total company revenue growth guidance of 4.5% to 5.5%, compared to our updated guidance of 1% to 2%. As you can see, there are four main drivers resulting in our forecast of lower total revenue growth for 2020. First, we anticipate most of the in-person events in our Reuters events business will be canceled this year in addition to our consumer and agency businesses being pressured. That's estimated to result in a 100 basis point negative impact. Second, our transactions revenue are expected to be lower primarily due to delays in installations, another 100 basis point negative impact. Third, we expect our big three segments will continue to experience softness in new sales, but expect this to rebound as the economy opens back up in the second half of the year. This is forecast to also have a negative 100 basis point impact. And lastly, we anticipate global print sales will decline, resulting in a 50 basis point negative impact for the year. The impact of these four items is projected to result in total company revenue growth ranging between 1% and 2% for the year. What's reflected on this slide is our current view of how we may perform over the balance of the year. We prepared three scenarios. The three scenarios assume a gradual economic improvement will begin in July, October, and January 2021. Our base case was derived by taking the midpoint of the Del- July, and October scenarios to determine our updated outlook. In preparing our updated outlook, we assume diminished economic activity through the second quarter, followed by a gradual recovery through the second half of 2020. This assumes the financial and operational health of our customer base, base in both the U.S. and global economies will gradually improve which we believe will coincide with the easing of lockdown restrictions. The metrics on this slide mirror what Steve discussed, except for the addition of interest expense, which we now forecast will range between 190 and 215 million, since we drew down under our revolver last month to bolster our liquidity. This will result in higher interest costs than originally estimated. All other guidance metrics we provided in February remain unchanged. Let me now turn it back to Steve to conclude our presentation.
3: Thanks, Mike. Uh, Let me conclude with a a few additional thoughts regarding uh, my initial observations of the company, having now been in this role for about uh, 60 days. First, uh, before joining the company, I understood how our customers depend on our products and our solutions, and now having met with many customers across the businesses, I am even more appreciative of the unique relationship we have with these customers. That relationship is a two-way street and our employees feel a personal responsibility to support their clients, many of whom they've worked with for years. That support and those relationships will pay dividends over the long term. Second, I'm already convinced that our big three businesses still have a lot of opportunity to grow to improve the customer experience and to take advantage of scale by transitioning to a more efficient operating model. For example, there are additional benefits to be achieved by integrating our product development and technology capabilities. And throughout my career, I've always focused on listening to the customer, understanding their needs, and then developing solutions that serve those needs. We have some of the best and brightest product development technologies in the world, technologists in the world, and if we support them properly, point them in the right direction, and leverage their talents across the organisation, we can drive higher growth while at the same time achieving greater efficiencies. And third, in what will be an extraordinarily difficult year given the global economic environment, we will manage the business accordingly and we'll control what's within our control. It will take a lot of hard work mixed with a bit of realism, (coughs) humility and teamwork to see us through to the other side. But I believe we can further strengthen our franchises and come through this in an even stronger position. Let
2: me now turn it
3: back over to Frank.
2: Thanks very much, Steve and Mike, and that concludes our formal remarks. So we would now like to open it up for questions. And Don Brader, if we get out the first question, please.
1: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to ask a question, please press one then zero on your telephone keypad. You may withdraw your question at any time by repeating the one zero command. If you're using a speakerphone, please pick up the handset before pressing the numbers. Once again, if you have a question, please press one then zero at this time. And one moment, please, for your first question. Your first question comes from the line of Andrew Steinerman from JP Morgan. Please go ahead.
5: Hi, good morning. This is Michael Cho on for, for Andrew. My first question I was just hoping you could um, unpack the uh, revenue pressure from the installation delays and uh, net new sales across. Big three segments. Can you just give us a sense of the contribution from each of the big three segments? And are there any segment of clients that you think um, that uh, that the potential rebound could be delayed?
4: Uh, Sure. This is Mike. I'll start on that question and and ask Steve to supplement. As we look at our transactions revenue, there is a significant portion that we can actually complete uh, remotely with our uh, installations. There are some of more our installations that are more complex or sophisticated in nature that actually require us to be in person. A, a good example would be our elite business uh, within uh, legal in that regard. Uh, we're closely monitoring that, and, and as our customers return to their respective offices, we'll have better uh, insights on that timing. Uh, in regards to the net sales, <clears throat> the net sales but primarily impacted with our big three uh, customer segments. We have assumed a significant haircut in our net sales uh, in Q2. We're not assuming negative net sales, we're just assuming lower net sales, which feed our recurring revenues, to generating 80% of our revenue. We think that we'll have lower net sales across all of the segments. I will mention in the month of April. We did have lower net sales, however, we did have good velocity given the current environment. Uh, illustratively, within legal, our Westlaw Edge sales in April continued at the same pace as they did pre-Novid, at the same uh, same premium. So, hopefully, Michael, that that helps. That's great. And if I could just squeeze one in on on cash flow, um,
5: in in the cash flow, what's the uh, 2020 free cash flow impact from the customer collection delays that that you called out? And um, is there a particular subset of clients that uh, you think might have higher variability?
4: Sure, Michael. Let me uh, break that down into two pieces. If you look at the revenue decrease or haircut, we believe the majority of that impact on free cash flow will be offset by our cost containment initiatives that Steve uh, and I mentioned. If you look at the decrease in our full year free cash flow, it is driven by our assumption of lower collections from our clients. Uh, We value our client relationships and we plan on supporting them uh, during this period. The areas that we're focused on the most, Michael, would be our small firms, uh, whether it be legal, tax, and accounting, Uh, It's early innings yet. Our collections in April uh, were pretty good, however, that's an area, as we go through the next couple of months, we feel like we'll have to support and are willing to support um, our customers. Uh, As we go into the Q2 earnings call, we'll certainly have more history uh, of collections, but that's our current assumption, and Michael, we believe that's temporary in in nature, and we'll recoup the timing of those collections in 2021. Great. Thanks,
1: Mike. Your next question comes from the line of Drew McReynolds from RBC. Please go ahead.
6: Yeah, thanks very much. Uh, good morning and, and appreciate all of the, uh, the detail uh, in the presentation. A big picture question
4: for you, Steve. I know uh, a little bit fresh on the job and COVID's taken over here. Would be curious to just get your initial Thoughts on you know where you see the one or two or three biggest kind of incremental growth opportunities here, given the asset mix, and um, in terms of you know what your specific priorities here, let's say over the next six to 12 months, uh, you know what they would be, and maybe just a, a last follow-up here in terms of M&A,
5: um, to what extent is Thompson still on on the front foot here, trying to
7: identify tuck-in uh, M&A opportunities? Thank you.
3: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Drew. I'm happy to address that. Um, in terms of um, uh, in terms of the biggest opportunities, look, there's... You know, candidly, there's too many to list at the moment. Uh, I, I see them across the big three franchises. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, the, w- within the legal area, you know, I've spent a lot of time over the last um, couple of months speaking with the managing partners of many, many of our clients. Of our customers, and both both before and 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 during the lockdown, and you know they they're saying things to me like, look, as, as firms we realize realised we've spent um, too much on real estate and not enough on on information and technology, and I think that provides a significant opportunity for us, and we're already starting to see uh, the, the, the the green shoots around that, and so our our move from content to integrated content and software within legal, I think is an opportunity that, that we'll need to execute against. And the same goes uh, with, with regard to uh, tax and accounting, where our content is essential and our software really is the workflow for many, many uh, uh, accounting firms. And there's lots of opportunity given a relatively modest share in Thomson Reuters uh, in that space. And with regard to corporates, I really feel as though we're just starting out. It's it's, it's the start of the journey. You know, we have good relationships with many general counsel within uh, the corporate sector and we have good relationships with many heads of tax. But if you look at our overall penetration, it's quite modest. Uh, So I think lots of upside uh, there. In terms of uh, my priorities since starting through, um, first and foremost, to do what I can to keep our uh, associates uh, safe, and to make sure that as a company we're contributing to the, com- the communities in which we operate. And I think we've made some meaningful progress uh, against this. Um, I hold uh, virtual uh, sessions with our associates a couple of times a week, um, a dozen or so at a time, and, you know, I'm getting a sense for the appreciation they have of the, the sort of care and diligence that we're applying uh, uh, w- with, with them for them. Um, so that's the first one. The second one is, um, you know, I do think that we have the opportunity to double down on a couple of our big product bets against the core franchises and potentially be a little bit more selective about freezing or cutting some activities at the long tail of our product development activities. And then thirdly, I truly believe, as I said in my remarks, that uh, we have an opportunity, particularly post the, uh, the divestiture of, 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 uh, of financial and risk, to make a shift to more of an operating company and take better advantage of scale across the segments. Uh, and I think you'll see, you know, Mike and I talk more about that in the quarters to come. With regard to um, the last part of your question, M&A, um, you know, we, we, we will continue with the strategy that was laid out uh, under Jim Smith. So we'll, we'll look to make... Uh, logical, bolt-on acquisitions that better, that help us better serve our customers within our core franchises. You want to see a change of direction as it pertains to that. If anything, we see coming out of this crisis given the strength of our balance sheet, more opportunities not less, but we're going to be very, very diligent about assessing first and foremost the impact of a particular acquisition and our ability to better serve our customers and provide a better customer experience. Um, secondarily, the, the, the fit and uh, uh, and so forth of, of the underlying technologies that, that, that we're acquiring, and then last but not least, of course, the financial aspects. And, and we'll be as,
4: as methodical
3: um, and and, uh, and thoughtful as we always have been, if not more, going forward.
4: Hey, Drew, if I could just add a couple of points there in regards to uh, growth opportunities. We're very optimistic about our government business, which is about $450 million of annualized revenue. We did the small acquisition earlier in q Q1 with Fundera. But if you look at areas like fraud, waste and abuse, I think Steve Rugley, who runs that business, is doing a great job with it. So I could see both organic and inorganic opportunities in government. And the other one I would mention, Drew, is within our global trade management business, just given uh, supply chain uh, issues, opportunities that are yet surfacing now. I think those are two additional opportunities to, for us to focus on.
1: Thank you very much. That's great. Your next question comes from the line of George Tong from Goldman Sachs, please go ahead.
2: Hi, thanks, good morning. You're targeting 100 million in cost savings from discretionary expense savings um, in response to the coronavirus. Can you talk about the timing of when you expect to realize some of these savings and how much may be permanent in nature?
4: Uh, Sure, George, it's Mike. Uh, In regards to the 100 million, we will achieve all 100 million in calendar year Uh, 2020, we're incredibly confident on our ability to do that. Uh, two illustrative examples, George, would be TE, travel and entertainment. Another example would be our consulting and use of third parties. There are other items which are primarily discretionary in nature, and we're also confident in our ability to maintain that uh, level of savings as we go into 2021.
3: Just an additional comment I think when, when we started to assess. Uh, the, the, the revenue, the top line impact, potential impact of COVID-19, we were quick to put the uh, cost reduction efforts in place and uh, very, very focused on costs that are not customer-facing and that don't don't directly affect our associates. Uh, to, my, to my earlier points, we're confident we're going to emerge stronger out of this, and in order to do so, we need to continue to invest in our customer-facing activities continue to invest in our our, um, uh, our associates, particularly in areas like AI and software development. So we're not taking our foot off off the gas when it comes to those critical areas.
4: Uh, George, I would just uh, add that you asked specifically about the expat of 100 million, uh, and also to Michael's questions on free cash flow for benefit of everyone. We are currently assuming that we spend our full capital expenditure budget, which is about $480 million on an annualized basis, so if you look at our free cash flow target of $1 billion, that assumes uh, full use of it. We'll certainly monitor that during the course of the year. We're very focused on maintaining the growth factors for 2021 and beyond. Just wanted to uh, clarify that.
2: Very helpful. And just as a follow-up in your updated full year revenue growth outlook, you did um, mention 100 bips of negative impact and lower new sales in your big three recurring revenue streams. Can you talk about how renewals and pricing trends in general are performing currently, just within your big three segments?
4: Sure. Uh, I'll start with that. Uh, we're very pleased, uh, George, in regards to the first quarter, uh, in regards to our renewals. It, it certainly varies uh, segment by segment and even by subsegment, but we think given the how we're embedded with many of our customers, we could have actually some upside on our retention as we go through uh, the year. Uh, many of our contracts are multi-year in nature. For example, about 60% of our contracts within legal um, are multi-year, normally two to three years uh, in range there. In regards to the net sales haircut that we are estimating, a lot of that happens in Q2. Uh, certainly no negative net sales, but lower net sales. Lower net sales across uh, the big three uh for Q2, some lower net sales in Q3, and we then expect it to begin to pick up. But the impact on that, uh, George, as you know, will have lower impact uh, in 2020 and more impact in 2021. Uh, pricing, uh, pricing uh, certainly happens throughout the year based on when contracts come up for renewal. The largest portion of our pricing happens in Q1 of each year, so that um, is secure and behind us. Uh, some of our tax um, happens later um, in the year, we currently expect retention overall uh, to be flat to 2019, which was slightly over uh,
3: 90%. And just to add to that, the the the, the, only, the only thing I'd add is that um, you know our leading edge products like West Floor Edge and Checkpoint Edge um, IQ, uh, th- these are efficiency tools, and so you know what our what our sales team are doing is. Uh, is just making those points to customers, and so so far, you know, even in the in the depths of uh, of April, that is uh, proving to be pretty effective.
7: Very helpful. Thank you.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Tony Kaplan from Morgan Stanley. Please go ahead.
8: Thank you. Good morning. How are you thinking uh-huh. about potential structural changes to? The legal and tax and accounting markets post COVID-19. Could you see some share shift towards maybe the larger firms from smaller firms, and just any other any other changes that could impact your business positively or negatively?
3: Tony, hi. Um, look, I think as we sit here today, it, it's hard to predict. Um, c- certainly, the heads of the uh, the largest uh, global law firms and the the largest Accounting firms predict that they are going to take share. You know, I've certainly heard that from many of them through this period of time. Um, so that that's one point of view. I think another point of view is that is, is that it's actually the middle that will suffer. So that the the, the small, very very nimble uh, firms that have uh, a great uh, you know customer relationships will will be okay and will adapt. Um, and, and, and the biggest of the firms have, have the buffer and the diversity of, of lines of business to, uh, to to weather the storm, and it will be the middle that will suffer. Um, to, to date, we do not see um, any acute signs of, 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 of pressure, but as you can imagine, we're monitoring it uh, very, very closely.
8: Got it. And then in terms of, uh, I guess, the shift to digital and legal, um, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, just- Does this current environment sort of accelerate that shift and what you're doing there? Or, um, you know, just wanted to understand, uh, you know, basically how how far along you you think you are and and how much more there is to go on transition. Yeah.
3: um, Tony, we see it unequivocally shifting that transition. So within, let me just give you a a thought on legal and a thought on, on tax and accounting. Within legal, as I said, you know most of the managing partners have sort of gone through the last month to six weeks and realized <clears throat> that over time they've spent too much on real estate and not enough on information and technology. Um, that, that is to our advantage. And uh, we think coming out of this, as I said in my remarks, we're going to see more demand for accurate, timely, uh, useful information delivered digitally and accessible 24 hours a day. And, and most, if not all, of our solutions are geared for that, um, for that environment. That's the first thing. The second thing is the, the, the tax and accounting profession enjoys a reputation as being um, uh, slow to transition to new products and technologies, and we're starting to see some of that resistance, um, some of that resistance uh, uh, evaporate. So, they have great loyalty to us. Uh, We've worked with many, many of these firms for decades, um, but, but one example would be, you know, the, the folks who were resistant to putting their tax return activity into cloud-based, into our cloud-based solutions have, have, have realised through this crisis that they just may not have a choice. So, I know that, um, that the number of the big technology, Silicon Valley technology players, have commented that they've seen, um, you, you know, uh, sort of two to four years of digital... digitization and, and transformation in the last few weeks. We're seeing a version of the same within, uh, within
4: our customer base. Yeah, Tony, I would just uh, supplement in addition to using digital for more of the commercial go-to-market sales and renewals, also for supporting our clients. Over the last six weeks, we've actually seen our call volumes remain up pretty steady um, levels, and I think we'll see more of that shift to uh, more self-service, we call it MyTR within the firm, but more self-service capabilities for, uh, for our clients will be really important and enabling that will be uh data and anal- analytics uh we're investing more in analytics across the firm but especially with our go to markets
8: That's great. Thank you guys.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Manav Patniak with Barclays. Please go ahead.
5: Yeah, thank you. Uh, good morning and uh, Steve, uh, congratulations. Welcome and looking forward to working with you again. Um, um uh, My first question is just, you know, on the Westlaw Edge product and maybe even Checkpoint Edge, can you just talk about where you are in terms of, you know, the penetration, the upsells, uh, just a little bit more color on, you know, where that's progressing, how
4: far along we are? Yeah, I'll start with that one. In regards to Westlaw Edge, just as a reminder, we concluded 2019 at about 33% penetration on an annual contract value basis. We're approaching 40%. Um, at the end of Q1. The premiums that we experienced, and price premiums in 2019, um, are continuing into Q1 and and actually, as I referenced earlier, continuing uh, into April. So, good movement in regards to Westlaw Edge, and we continue to estimate that by year-end, we will approach 55 percent penetration for uh, annual contract value. Uh, Checkpoint Edge uh, is coming along, and we would expect that to accelerate um, as we progress during uh, 2020. I think that the key item there is leveraging AI, uh, machine learning, et cetera, with our products. Uh, so, pleased with the progress overall of the
5: Got it. And then, you know, just in terms of, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I understand usage of your products uh, are probably, you know, going up for those that have it. Uh, just some color on, you know, the how the contract structure works in terms of usage or users, because I presume, you know, there will be pain at every uh, customer's, uh, you know, companies, and and also, you know, in that uh, customer count that you gave, like, what is the rough mix of, you know, small, medium, and large?
4: Yeah, I'll I'll start with that. Uh, in regards to our contracts, we I uh, do not anticipate opening up our contracts uh, during this period. Uh, we're we'll certainly going to support our customers, but more so from the standpoint of contract payment terms, but we're going to maintain the integrity of the committed contracts that we have, supporting about 80% of our business. So we're not making any wholesale uh, changes in the way that we handle our uh, contract structuring commitments. Uh, we'll support our clients more from the standpoint um, of payment uh, terms. Yeah, we certainly monitor the product usage uh, on a daily basis across our firm and including our orders. Uh, we saw a small dip uh, immediately when the work from home started across the economy, but we saw it quickly pick back up to pretty normal, uh, normal levels.
3: Yeah, and the other, the other comment um, I'd make to that, Mark, is you know, we, we've analyzed sort of every form of pressure. Uh, through our customer base and, and onto our business that you can that you can imagine, you can think of. Um, and uh, you know, a couple of things. I think to Mike's point, we, we see products like Wet Edge uh, continuing uh, on the same trajectory in the same path that they were before the crisis. And very importantly, you know, our 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 products and solutions are a source of efficiency and cost reduction for our customers. Across their their entire cost base, that's that's how we're increasingly uh, selling them, and that's how they're increasingly being viewed. And so uh, we're not obviously, you know, we're not uh, ignorant to the pressures that our customers are facing and are going to face. But we're part of the we're part of the solution, not the problem.
4: And then I have just an additional point in regards to the segmentation or stratification question that you asked. About 34% of our big three revenue is within small firms, which equates to about 30% for total TR. All right, thank you, guys.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Aravinda Galapetaj from Canaccord. Please go ahead.
5: Good morning, thanks for taking my question, and Steve, uh,
0: congrats on the role and uh, welcome to the first conference call. Um my question is on the uh, Aravinda,
2: can we uh, can we ask you to get a little closer to your phone? it's a little
5: hard to hear you please all right, we'll do hope that's better well, uh,
0: well,
2: well,
5: thank you. Hi can you guys hear me? We can now. Go ahead. uh my first is on the
0: uh, the the color you gave on the comparison versus the uh, the recession and uh, the, uh, the picture time in 2008-2009, um, the one thing that stood out to me was um, last time around the recovery in the, uh, the legal uh, business, uh, the, the impact on the legal business was a little bit more lagged. I mean, if my memory serves me correctly, the quarterly decline rate did not bottom out until around Q1, 2010. Um, when I look at some of the guidance that you've given on a quarterly basis, obviously you're expecting a, 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 a more a sooner recovery uh, starting the second half of the year. Is that simply based on the different structural factors that you talked of, or obviously there are differences in the in the recession of 2008 and 2009 that was far more severe? But I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, and uh, a quick follow-up on your update to the uh, refinative transaction. I was wondering if you can just walk us through sort of the approvals process. I know there's a little bit of a delay on the European side of the approvals. Is there anything to update on that front? Thank you.
7: Yeah,
4: I'll start with the responses and ask Steve to jump in. When we think about 2020 COVID-19 versus 2008-09, certainly different macro factors are at play, and as Steve mentioned. Legal excluding print bottom out at about 2% on an annual basis in 2009 and 10. We think certainly our product mix is different than it was today. Back in 2008 and 9, we had not even launched Westlaw Next, and we now have Westlaw Edge. And just given the activity that we've seen in April, we think the demand from our clients will, will continue, uh, kind of more of a, a must-have. So I think the strength and mix of our offerings are much different now. and the degree upon which we're further embedded with our clients today um, is another uh, big factor. So I think those are some of the factors that give us confidence uh, in regard. Certainly, as Steve and I mentioned, uh, we'll provide another update at Q2 um, as we learn more. Uh, in regards to the refinitive transaction, uh, based on feedback from the refinative management, uh, their viewpoint is currently between refinitive and LSC that the transaction is still on target uh, to close by the end of 2020. Uh, certainly, the current environment has created some additional uh, challenges and d- delays here and there. But overall, based on our conversations with Refinitiv, uh their their confidence level is high, which was confirmed by the LSC uh, during their recent uh, earnings call. Steve? I,
2: mean, do I have Mike
1: Your next question comes from the line of Tim Casey from BMO. Please go ahead.
6: Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Um, two quick ones for me. Um, Steve, regarding uh, your comments about, um, you know, uh, an accelerating uh, shift of, of um, customer behavior, um, on a net basis, is there, is there not some offset to that that you'll see an acceleration of print decline? How should we think about those two metrics? And then, uh, you mentioned uh, your global trade management business is one that you're quite excited about. Could you scale that for us? I, I think you mentioned 450 million from government. Is it is it close to that size, or is it, uh, is it smaller? Thanks.
3: Uh, so let, let me let me take the the first one, Tim, and I'll, I'll defer to, um, uh, to to Mike for the second. As, as I said, we we certainly see. Um, the acceleration in, in a shift to to, to, to virtual offices, to uh, to digital solutions, and, and we think that that plays nicely into the, uh, the the set of products and solutions that we have in the marketplace and those that we are developing, um, uh, leading into our AI machine learning and software uh, development capabilities. Um, as for the decline in print, um, you know, we, we've been, uh, I think, very prudent and conservative in terms of what what the impact in Q2 on print will be, because um, to the extent that there are legal librarians who are not in their offices and on campus and so forth, they're not there to receive books. Um, And so we've we've, we've really taken a significant haircut in in Q2, Um, and we've been, I think, very conservative as to to sort of a a gradual return to activity through the rest of the year. as as to whether this contributes to a a, a broader and more accelerated uh, de- decline in print, um, you know we we have I think that baked into our sort of long term expectations in any case, um, and to the extent that it uh, is accelerated by by this uh, this crisis and the change in behaviours, we're confident that the acceleration and shift to our
4: digital solutions will more than offset that. Uh, Tim, in regards to our global trade management business, we will approach 100 million U.S. uh, this year uh, in 2020 on an annualized basis. Remember, back in Q4, 2018, we acquired uh, Integration Point, and we see that business continuing to grow nicely uh, in 21 and beyond.
2: Thank you.
1: Your next question comes from the line of Vince Valentini from TD Securities. Please go ahead.
6: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for all the information and for taking so many questions, guys. Uh, One clarification, one question. Um, Mike, you said 25% tax on the $7.6 billion value for your LSE shares. Can you just confirm there's there's zero cost base there? So you'll expect to pay a full 25% in four years? Uh,
4: Simplistic answer, uh, Vince, that would be the easiest way to look at it. It's roughly 25% on that. Okay. The cost base is very low.
6: And second, the question, if I can just try to unpack your slide 29 a little bit, prior to the COVID crisis, you had certainly been expecting the organic growth in 2021 to be at least as good as as 2020. If I look at this slide and you're taking these somewhat one-time hits in the events business and the installation revenue, is there any reason, if if we go with your base case scenario, that the economy is recovering by the second half of the year, is there any reason to not think that if you expected 5% organic revenue growth before that you'd now expect 7% organic revenue growth in 2021?
4: Yeah, Vince, it's a, it's a fair question. Uh, I'm going to refrain from going into much detail in 2021 today as we come back uh, with the Q2 call. Hopefully we have some additional insight. Hopefully can appreciate there's just so many moving pieces right now. We certainly remain very optimistic with the foundation of our our business and and the strong underlying book of business driving the recurring. But if I could ask just for a little time, Vince, on the 2021 um, outlook for all the metrics, that that would be helpful.
1: Okay. Thanks so much. Uh
4: Operator,
2: I think we have one final question, please.
1: That question comes from the line of Gary Bisbee from uh, Bank of America. Please go ahead.
7: Hey, guys. Yeah, one, one question for each of you. First for Steve, I, so you talked about initial impressions and, and opportunities. I, you know, one, one that you mentioned was further um, operating model efficiency potential over time, and as part of that, you know, I heard a, a comment about product development. Can, can you just help us from a high level, you know, understand what you're thinking? Is this really the concept of post separating half the company, the, the, the business has not necessarily been right-sized or, Efficiently set up for the current for the current um, you know scale of the business, or, or is there something more targeted and specific you have in mind? At
3: this point? Yeah, it, 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 look, I don't think it's a question of, of you know a sort of a, a, a big disconnect, um, uh, Gary, in terms of uh, the, the, the size of the overhead or the, the the you know the right sizing of the cost base. I think it's more more specific than that. Um, so. You know, there there was, prior to the divestiture of the the F&R business, there was something of a holding company feel to to, to the company, and I think we still have some of those vestiges today. Um, And, you know, given the size of that F&R business, I think that was understandable at the time. But we have a a pretty exciting opportunity
8: to look across the business,
3: identify the, the areas of activity where, in service of our customers, we can do things at a better scale, we can embed uh, m- m- more uh, and next-generation technology in those underlying activities and do them significantly more efficiently. You know, and, and, and that, that is every activity you can imagine, starting from the way in which we capture and store data and information, through to, um, uh, you know, application of, of AI and machine learning and the development of, of products. So that's, that's the first thing. On the, and on the product development um, uh, lens, you know, I think we've just got some 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 room to improve there. I think our ability to, you know, we we are very focused on our customers. We have um, we have uh, a lot of talented uh, sales and customer service people who have truly special relationships with with the accountants and the lawyers uh, and the executives with whom they work. But I think our ability to truly understand the decisions that our customers are making. Um, and translate that back into the solutions we're providing, there's some real upside there. Uh, and I think we can get better, we can get faster, and more agile at doing that, both in terms of understanding those needs today and anticipating them, and getting them into the product features and functionalities going forward. Um, you know, and this is uh, this is eminently achievable. There's nothing sort of overly scientific um, uh, or, or difficult about doing this. We've just got to set
7: about doing it. Great, thanks. And then the follow-up for, for Mike. So the cost reduction um, commentary you gave about this year, it, you know, it sounds like a lot of that is, is discretionary that goes away but, but could come back in the future. Is, is there any way to think about the cadence of that? Is that, you know, do you think those costs largely would come back in line with revenue, or do you have some discretion, um, you know, at, at, at the point to bring those costs
4: uh, Gary, we're going to uh, work to ensure that those costs do not come back in the aggregate. There could be a slightly different mix as we go into 2021, but, but certainly a very strong focus on those discretionary costs will be a permanent part of our DNA um, with that. So it could be a slightly different mix, but uh, I'm optimistic we'll be able to hold that as we go into 2021.
3: Yeah, can I just add, I, I think, <clears throat> you know, Gary, many of the companies you follow followed will say the version of the same thing, but in, in, in a sense... Uh, you know, not, notwithstanding the, 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 the human crisis here, this is the great experiment, right? And so we, we cut those costs and we see what happens. And so far, we haven't missed them. Not not, not one dollar of them. So um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that it, it really, I think, gives us courage in, in, in our convictions to double down on our bigger bets that, that, that our customers truly value. In both the legal, the tax accounting, the corporate, the government components of our business, and we're in the process of doing that. And so far, the results that uh, have been also very, very promising. So we we plan to continue on that path through the rest of this
2: year and use that momentum heading to 2021. Thank you. So that will be our last uh, question for the day. We, we know that there was an awful lot to digest there. We very much appreciate your, your time and attention on this call. I'm sure you'll have follow-up questions, so please don't hesitate to reach out for me and for Megan, and uh, we will be available to help you with that. Thanks very much for joining us this morning, and uh, have a good day.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, this conference will be available for replay after 10.30 Eastern Time today through May 12th. You may access the AT&T Executive Replay System at any time by dialing 1-866-207-1041 and entering the access code 8916567. Those numbers, once again, are 1-866-207-1041 with the access code 8916567. That does conclude your conference for today. Thank you for your participation and for using AT&T Teleconference. You may now disconnect.